Walkers. Welcome to No Prize from God, Episode 4. No Prize from God features conversations about belief, unbelief, and everything between. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. This episode features Dwid Hellion, founder, mastermind, creative engine behind the long-running band Integrity. Misha! Integrity has been responsible for many albums over the years that were simply iconoclastic in the realms of metal and hardcore, reshaping, redefining everything that we understood about it, leading to so many other permutations, for better or worse, in multiple directions. But they made undeniable classic records like Those Who Fear Tomorrow, Humanity is the Devil, Systems Overload, and even in later years, with records like To Die For, or even the more recent Suicide Black Snake, have continued to push the boundaries, all drenched in this atmosphere of the occult, the supernatural, the superstitious, constantly pushing the boundaries of what's possible within the genre musically as well as aesthetically and philosophically. Integrity is certainly the first band I'm aware of to come into the scene and bring ideas from the Process Church of Final Judgment, the Manson family, all sorts of strange, controversial, interesting, bizarre, challenging, provocative ideas. To call the band controversial at various points in its existence would be a massive understatement. Integrity arose from the hardcore scene, to be sure, but was drawing from deeper and darker influences as disparate as Sam Hain to the work of controversial noise provocateur and philosopher Boyd Rice, and on down the extensive rabbit hole that is as deep and dark as the band's very music itself. I don't want to waste a whole bunch of time here with the intro because I want to get right into this interview. I do want to tell you about Integrity's new record, Howling for the Nightmare Shall Consume, the band's first record on long-running, badass label Relapse Records. <laughs> Like every Integrity release, it's a challenging, thought-provoking, and engaging, heavy music listen. DeWitt is one of my oldest friends. I've known the guy since, I think, 1989, 1990. DeWitt and I are both from the Midwest. I've made my home here in California now for about 15, 16 years. DeWitt has been overseas in Europe for quite some time. So without further ado, here it is, my conversation with DeWitt Hellion of Integrity. This is No Prize from God. Perhaps you think that when you are dead, you stay in your grave. 
Well, I was born in uh, Marion, Indiana. And uh, then I lived in uh, La Fountain, Indiana, which was a little bit north. That's where uh, James Dean and all that stuff was from. Basically in the middle of nowhere. And uh, pig farms, literally nothing. And as I grew up there, I, I uh, you know, it's a weird thing. I would think uh, I wanted something more, some bigger city life and all that kind of thing. As it would uh, progress, it became, I mean, it was a magical time to live there. And, it, you know, as you're roughly my age, there was great terrible weather back then you know yeah. like we ha yeah. have great winters like lots of snow and lots of snow to me and this is for the your listeners that were young meant that was adventure there was no internet there was none of that you know in the in the uh 70s in indiana the weather was pretty pretty different i think and uh there was even like real, a famous blizzard, right? What was that, like 76, yeah, yeah. maybe? I think it was 77, maybe 76. But that was that was one of my favorite memories of living in, in Indiana, is that me and my friends, we, we jumped off the roof of our houses into the snow, and it was like just jumping like a foot. <laughs> yeah. But then you fell, you know, like 10, 12 feet down. That was amazing. It was an amazing time. It was a magical time. And uh, so I grew up uh, with my grandparents a bit and with my my parents. And uh, at some point, when I think I was about eight years old, right after the first Star Wars movie, my parents divorced and uh, things went a bit haywire. And there was a lot of violence and craziness and... Uh, my mother ended up hooking up with a guy who became our uh, stepfather, who's a very violent guy. And there was a period, which I didn't really remember until several years back when my grandmother told me. She said that I had called her and said, I'm going to fucking I didn't say, not fucking, uh, I'm going <laughs> to elaborate. But I'm going to kill this guy because he was beating on my mother. And I had a knife. And my, my, my grandmother and uh, my grandfather drove up and uh, come and took us away because uh, of the situation because I was going to murder the guy. As an eight-year-old, you know, I, I would be the one murdered. But that was how it, it, it played out. From that point, there was a, a lot of uh, different places to go. And, uh, you know, uh, my, my father remarried to a lady who worked for General Electric. She was uh, upper management and they relocated to Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, so I moved there and um, I want to say 80, 80 maybe and uh, 79 to 80, something like that. And I moved with them and uh, I, I was interested in BMX bikes and all that kind of thing, as a lot of kids. Maybe you were into that, too. First the racing, then the tricks. And then eventually you realize, you know, if you crash on these fucking things, you're ruined. <laughs> so you get into skateboarding. 
and from skateboarding thrasher magazine what what, what was the the brainchild of punk rock and yeah. so they they uh had all these great ads with beautiful artwork for punk bands and you know it, you just couldn't you couldn't turn your eye away from that and all the kids liked it and and so did we and um I got into the punk thing and in Louisville, Kentucky. And then uh, come about, this is about 1984, I think. In 1984, uh, in the backyard of my house, not in the backyard, but the house behind my parents' house in the suburbs, because my parents are very fucking religious. And there was a church right behind my house. You know, it wasn't in my property, but it was the, behind my property and for some golden reason and i think you're gonna appreciate this right maybe you don't know this ryan but but you're gonna like this there was a like a little hall in there where you you know people get married or, or do their little thing with the church and this band called maurice had booked had yeah. booked a show there and that the, was sam Hain and maurice in uh yeah. in louisville yeah wow yeah I have that was I, I have that, that was flyer. my backyard. <laughs> wow, wow! I it didn't was, know that. I it was that. it was literally behind my house. It was my house, and then that was there, right? Amazing. And so that that was my experience to to that, and that's why you know I'm a Dan fan, and I've been stuck with uh, Love and Sam Hain and Danzig, and, and and I know you are also a big fan of that stuff. But it was like, you know, it was like a fucking lightning bolt from the heavens. This yeah. fucking stuff happened behind yeah. my house. In a church <laughs> of all places. In a church, yeah. The blasphemy of it all. And my parents, that would be the one thing they would have absolutely not wanted. But there it was, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what, And that brings up a, an interesting thing that, that I haven't really gotten into with you before. Um what was the religious background that your parents were coming from? Like, what was their whole trip about? Well, they're very uh, extreme religious people. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you for one second. St. Albert's, Albert's Church, April 3rd, 1986. Yeah, then that's probably right. Because then right after that, I must have moved to uh, Cleveland. I think I'm going with 84 because of uh, when I bought records. That's probably the the mix up. You know, this is thirty years. Uh, my memory. Also, shit. also, we're old now, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is senility. This is senility. I think that what happened was uh, the story for the date reason was based off of when I went to buy records at uh, Bardstown uh, Mall. They call it yeah. in Louisville, and uh, they had a record store there, and I'd saved up money from cutting lawns and stuff Bar father. bardstown road for people who don't know that's like a pretty main street that runs through louisville right there's like yeah it, it's nothing to be so spectacular about but there <laughs> there was some spectacular uh there there was a there was one there was one uh record shop that the bass player from king horse worked at mm -hmm. and uh i can't remember what it's fucking called right now 
but he, uh, damn it. I can't remember what it's called. Was it ear ecstasy or before that? Yeah, that, that oh, might okay. be ear ecstasy. Yeah. yeah. And there was also a place that was uh, called Ernie's pizzeria. And that was a place where you'd go there. And this is like, uh, do you ever see that, um, Roger Corman movie about uh, the punk kids and stuff. Yeah, with, yeah uh, of course, yeah. Meet the kids from suburbia. There's Jack. Wake up and smell the coffee, man. Sheila. Staff, some new scars are ready. Joe. That could be there all your life. And Ethan. I feel kind of scared. You'll love them. Or hate them. Metal rejects running wild in our street. And it was like that. I mean, it was really fucking like that. And it was called Ernie's Pizzeria. It was just a guy who had a pizza shop and he'd have punk bands in there. And I would go in there as a 13 year old kid. Rat from uh, King Horse and those guys would be there and they'd kind of like talk shit to the younger kids who was me and other kids like me. And um, we could buy pitchers of fucking beer for, I think, a couple bucks. And they didn't ask you any fucking idea at all. And we'd have these fucking pictures of beer. And it was like, really, it was like, uh, what was that movie called that they made with that uh, Roger Corman? I'm I'm thinking, obviously, Suburbia is where my Suburbia, yeah, Suburbia. Suburbia is the one I'm thinking about. It was like Suburbia or something. And, you know, like young kids just getting wild and doing crazy stuff. And, uh, you know, we drink these pitchers of beer. And uh, that's how I come up with my nickname, actually, from being too drunk to say dude. <laughs> yeah. And, and one of the things that's been, I think, fascinating about you for fans is the, uh, the disinformation that's been put out, not just by others, but sometimes by you. Because I, I remember you telling me <laughs> probably, you know, around the time that we first became friends, which would have been like, 1989 1990 yeah a long that, time uh, yeah you, you told me that the uh the first metallica album had a sticker on it that said don't be a dwid by the new metallica and that, that yeah. was where the name came from and i was and for years even as a diehard you know my, my dual fandoms of metallica and danzig for years i believed that to be true until i got to you know there was some point at some point i turned the corner and was like i don't think that that probably actually happened <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that is true. I don't know anymore. It's been, it's been so long, you know, you yeah. can't remember anymore what happens and what, what's real. Well, I don't know. My, that's my, the, my, my, my grasp on reality has changed over the years, so it could be anywhere. Well, that's the beauty of, uh, of nicknames and aliases when they're organically <laughs> birthed and assigned to you versus chosen. You know, well, which- yeah, I mean, that was the thing. I mean, like I said before, like uh, Sean's name was Rat, you know, and yeah. like people had had these names and that was like a thing you had in the 80s. You were Spike and Rat and fucking yeah. whatever. Eerie Ir- Ir- Vaughn. Yeah. <laughs> Tesco and just, V and Lee. Yeah, yeah, sure. There wasn't really uh, any importance to it. It just was that. And. Man, I probably just forgot or twisted it up, and you know, I've I don't know. I actually don't know. So, thank God I never have to fucking write a book about this bullshit. <laughs> this, this is how, uh, and, and this this will dovetail already nicely into religion because this is a lot of how religion happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it, it's phone call, you know. 
People imagine trying to make one it thing, it goes. Yeah, imagine trying to come up with the canon for the origin of the name Dwid. You know, you yeah. have you could have four different sects of of uh, believers <laughs> adhering to a different factual origin <laughs> that are all in conflict with each other. So yeah, so around that period, you know, you mentioned your parents were were very religious. What religious trip were they coming from? Well, they still are very religious actually. The you know, they're uh Pentecostals and they, they, they put a lot of money into the church and they, they ended up becoming uh, very fluent in their careers. So they put a ton of money into the church and they're, they're very um, dedicated followers of the church. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this, when I was a kid, I hated the church. I hated it desperately because they would tell me that everything I did was going to be a punishment because yeah. I was defying. And then uh, as I become a teenager, I became rebellious to the church. And then as I became uh, older and probably with the help of drugs, I became a person who became uh, – I twisted it around to respect the church and in a way that – and let me explain it, that, uh, you know, you hear a lot of people who are into the metal scene and they'll say, oh, you know, the church is evil. They did all these terrible things. They tortured people. They did evil. Fuck the church. I'm evil. I'm fucking black metal. Okay, so what are you? Are you fucking against dudes that's evil or are you evil? What is you? So that's kind of confusing to me. And so I sort of started to see the devil within the church. And I sort of started to uh, admire that devil in that church, you know. I don't know. That's just where I'm at right now. It can change, you know, as everything does. But I, I like I like to see it that way. And I'm confused when I read these interviews with guys that say that kind of stuff. But, I mean, also, you know, I'm entertained by it, too. But... Uh, yeah, you know, it. I was just thinking about this recently. Whichever organization has the claim to the Church of Satan right now in America, I don't think they're Levian Satanists. I, but they're like verified as Church of Satan on Twitter. But they're the ones I think who did like the statue in Michigan and whatever. And uh, oh well, the, those are different guys. The Levay the Levay guys is uh, from uh, Anton's uh, uh, girlfriend who was yeah. a secretary, but uh, those are different guys. So. Yeah, because these newer guys, one of the things that trips me out about it and entertains me, as you put it, they're very, they're like very progressive, liberal, pro-LGBTQ, uh, you know, feminist, uh, and all this sort of progressive stuff, which I understand the contrarian spirit of that, given that so much of the right-wing evangelical thing, especially in America is very much anti those things and very much very oppressive. But at the same time, to your point, the idea that we're evil, we're Satanists, we're the church of Satan. And then like, you know, don't use those words. I'm triggered by those words. Like it, I, I don't, you know, there's a conflict there that I don't know that they are even cognizant of. It's like a cognitive dissonance. Yeah. But I mean, there's a depth to the whole thing. That's uh, very difficult to, to, digest i think yeah. and uh, you know the real fucking 
bad guys, if you want to put it that way, are going to be the real church guys. Right. And then you got these other guys who are, you know, LeVay's situation was different. I mean, LeVay's situation was, um, say, stating uh, he's a rebel. He's a guy who's a free thinker. It wasn't so much about religion per se, but about archetypes. Yeah, and it wasn't so even really about that. being evil necessarily, right? Just evil within right, a certain no. context. But more well, identifying I, with that rebellious character of Lucifer. I would like to think that maybe LeVay's scene was about sort of Gnosticism and uh, James Dean in a way. We came back to that again, but I think it was sort of, he, he was a rebel. He was a punk rocker kind of in a way. And he was doing this Gnostic thing. I mean, you know, Gnosticism is a uh, uh, a bit of an inversion of the uh, of the Catholic version of, of of Christianity. I think that was his approach. I think that he was just kind of saying, you know, be an individual. I don't think it is as much religious based as some people might. Um, like to credit it and i'm not saying this to discredit him either sure. but uh i think he was a, a wonderful guy and, and and a fantastic philosopher but um he was not uh he was not uh i think doing it for religious purposes as much as he was doing it for philosophical philosophy you know yeah i think, that was his, I his think the the whole church of satan thing was was theater it was the artifice and sort of the that was the artistic yeah, way that he was there, there was some theater i mean yeah. I, but but i don't i want to be careful to say i don't want to say it in, in this in the context that what he was doing was the theatrical and false no it and wasn't that, and, false and that's not what i'm saying either uh you know just no, no, more no, that that's but, the that's the, it, that's the window dressing that kind of invites you in to investigate the word, what's behind the wording it. Can, the wording can, uh, you know, can go all kinds of places with that. And, I, you know, for me, I think that the guy was, was one of the greatest uh, minds of our time and such a, such a witty fucking bastard. But um, people wanted to paint him into a corner, make him – the devil make him this, make him that, and uh, he embraced it, and he fucking made the most of that, and I admire that um, quite a lot. What country do you come from, Transylvania or what? Well, not really. My family, part of my family, is from Transylvania. Is it necessary to kill you by driving a stake through your heart, or will just a knock on the head do it? I will never die. You won't? No, of course not. I've made arrangements. <laughs> How do you like that? A frozen devil, right? Huh? That's a good point. You're going to be frozen. This is a, now, that's a great thing, I think, incidentally, this freezing, because I think we all want to live forever. I think basically oh, we, none of us want to die. We're like little children that are put to bed before we really want to go to bed. And if we, I hate to sound like Goldwater, but in our hearts, none of us really want to die. We all know that death is something. You don't know how many pe people are going to come to your funeral. You don't know what your wives, your husbands are going to be doing afterwards. People don't want to die because they don't want to miss anything afterwards. And they're afraid for what they're going to be missing. So are, are you saying then that you're going to make arrangements to have yourself frozen? If it's at all possible. If it's not, I'll make other arrangements. 
course, what do you mean other arrangements? Well, well I let's take the theories. freezing first now. I could just picture this now. About 10 days after you're frozen, some minister's going to tiptoe over and turn off your electricity. Or bring a blow, <laughs> or bring a blowtorch in. Yeah. Well, a blowtorch would be, you'd make, you'd make you right at home. What are the other arrangements? Well, oh, there's another make? thing. You see, the concept of the devil is a, a multitude of, of uh, interpretations. Now, one of the realms of hell, Tartarus, the lowest of all, is supposed to be a very frigid place, like a gigantic refrigerator. This is where Lucifer lives. And there's nothing hot at all about it. On the other hand, the lake of fire that's described in the Bible was described to Eskimos by Christian missionaries at one time. And they, not having enough heat, all wanted to know, how do we get there? In fact, um, when he passed away, they had the circle of nine. And uh, Boyd Rice was supposed to be the, uh, the uh, guy to take over the, the church. And he, he, he declined because he said... Uh, no one can, can replace that guy, you know. I'm going to be joined live in the studio by Boyd Rice, founder of the Abraxas Foundation and a cult fascist think tank. Boyd Rice, a member of the priesthood of Anton LaVey's Church of Satan. He worships a power, a force, a god, whatever you want to call it, known as Abraxas. He says of Abraxas, it begetteth truth and line, good and evil, light and darkness, in the same word, in the same act. Wherefore is Abraxas terrible? It is love. brings me to uh one of the things i'm i'm very curious to know what was your first do you remember the first thing or the first couple of things that inspired your fascination with the occult do you remember sort of discovering you know seeing something and being tripped out by it and wanting to know more and well i think that what you're doing right now as a fellow hoosier is you're you're baiting me a little bit because I think you already know the answer, and that answer is Sammy Terry. <laughs> yeah, man. Good evening. Welcome to two maddening hours of horror and fright. I am Sammy Terry. <laughs> as you were a young man and, and as I was a young man and growing up in Indiana, we had the luxury, the privilege of having every Saturday night Sammy fucking Terry, the horror host, 
introduce the greatest movies that ever existed. And I would, and this is in the seventies when fucking you'd have, uh, I think it was three or four channels. How many channels did we have? Three, four channels. Three. Maybe? This was before Fox even. So we had NBC, I think ABC it was, and CBS. You had four, right. you had four 55. Yeah, I think it was three or four. And he, but, was, on, uh, and he was on channel four, which was the, he was on NBC channel four. affiliate, I think at the time. And I think he was on after uh, Kung Fu Theater. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I would stay up, and I was so lucky to have uh, affluent parents that I had this real small, like, fucking, like an iPad size TV, black and white, which was even better. Like, probably they were like, fuck him, we're going to give him a black and white TV. But for me, that was like, <laughs> that made more sense in the big, in the, in the big picture. Man, I would stay up late as fuck watching that shit. And it changed my world. It changed my whole life, you know. And Sammy Terry, he he's he's a big part of who I am, I think. Amen. And he gave me that that whole that whole idea of things could be different. And the crazy thing about Sammy Terry was, and you probably know this, is that he was interested in the church. He was a I think he was even a pastor, wasn't he? Have, have, we, have we never talked about this? Because now, now I feel like as a fellow Hoosier, you're baiting me into Sammy Terry went to my church. South, okay, but South, was he a pastor or was he just a uh, You know, I, I don't know that I would have been aware if he had any particular role in the church in terms of like the elders or clergy or, or whatever. He wasn't the pastor there. But I have a vivid memory, one of my earliest memories, because I was probably like four years old, of uh, seeing him, you know, out of the makeup in his suit at Southport Presbyterian on Sunday, and literally, like a like a movie, tugging on his pant leg and looking up at him and going, "Are you Sammy Terry?" And he just looked down. He didn't say a word. He just looked down and gave me that smile. That Sammy Terry smile. And then my mom grabbed me by the hand and pulled me away. Like, you know, don't bother him, you know. And uh, so, yeah. So it, so also, Ryan, it gets even weirder because the fucking guy also, what was his job? He owned a fucking music store. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To see how he, he, he maybe was the devil on the uh, He was the Hoosier devil. And he corrupted us. He shapes. <laughs> he shaped so many of. I mean, all of us weirdos, definitely that grew up in the late seventies and the early eighties in Indiana that ever got into anything weird. Yeah, yeah. He, he was. He was definitely corrupting our young minds in the most beautiful way. But also of the horror hosts, I feel he was one of the premier fucking characters absolutely and that's something that i've learned in adulthood whereas you know obviously when we're growing up in the bubble and he's our local access guy i mean he might as well have been he might as well have been james dean as far as we were concerned yeah. in terms of his stature, he was to me you he know? was to me. and then I, it wasn't until later in life you know and, and even sort i guess seeing uh fright night the movie sort of you know and getting becoming kind of aware of elvira those are my first clues of like oh everybody has their horror host like there's more of these characters yeah. you know regionally and yeah i've had gularty and yeah there's a bunch of and i've learned um you know more into adulthood 
um, and courtesy of the internet and YouTube and things like that. So much more about all of those. And yet, certainly his stature will never be diminished for us. But I've also been happy to learn that he was kind of elevated amongst those horror hosts. Like he's, he's like, he's known, you know, he wasn't like, he yeah. wasn't a nobody in the horror, horror host crowd. He, he, I think that he was probably like the uh, Willie Dixon of horror hosts. <laughs> yeah. So he was yeah. like the guy who thought of it all, but he wasn't the Elvis of it all. Yeah, totally. You know? Totally. Yeah. Like, uh, like integrity in metalcore. One it say. is like that, but I think that you you're a big uh, uh, reason of the whole metalcore uh, coining of that phrase. It, it's nice to hear you say that because I, I I you know I've never said this actually I don't know that I've ever even said this out but loud. But I say I say it with love. And oh, I hate. know, I know. Um, <laughs> well, we you know we like to that's our that's the European in our blood. We like to count and measure and quantify things. I, I've never. I don't think I've ever said this out loud, even. But I'm pretty sure I actually coined that term, and yeah, it's not. I, I, and it's not something that I want to go out and be like, "Hey," and wave a flag for it, especially given what it's become. But you know I'm how much fucking time sure you wasted for me in my life having to answer that question, <laughs> you motherfucker. No, but I. But I think that it's hey. true. I think that you were the guy that uh, that you coined that stuff because the bands that you were managing, and uh, I think that you were like, "Hey." these are some bands that I like and somehow they, you know, you force them into listening to our stuff and a lot of other things. And, and, uh, you corrupted the youth. <laughs> Absolutely. Much like Sammy. Terry. Well, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll like Sammy. <laughs> if this makes you feel any better about having to answer the metalcore question, I also, this is in a book. There's a book about this thick. That's like a history of metal that a couple journalists put out on like a legitimate publisher a few years ago. And I'm interviewed in the book. And I credit Javier Van Huss with creating Fashion Core. Yeah, well, I agree <laughs> and with now, that. And now that follows him around. <laughs> Good. He deserves it. <laughs> yeah, he did it. Oh. Yeah, he did. He did. All those guys did. Yeah, but Hobbs, he's a, an amazing guy. Too. Oh, I love him. Love him to death. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I think Sammy Terry, I mean, we could, we could do the whole podcast on Sammy Terry, which we should some other time, but, uh, you know, his son has picked up the mantle and I know that. Yeah. 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 So I don't really know much about him, but I know that he does, you know, goes out. I've seen a couple episodes and, uh, he does a pretty good job. There's merch. I I always, whenever Sammy Terry comes up, I always think I got to go buy a t-shirt because he has merch. I have merch. I have merch in my house. I need to get some. I'm going to do that actually as soon as we're done. Because I've thought this is like the hundredth time have, that I've thought about it. I have OG merch before he died. And uh, I interviewed him for, I had a zine called Blood Book. Of course. You interviewed me for Blood Book. But I never put out his uh, his his things. So. You never put out mine, which now I feel like I'm in great company. Yeah, that's why. I was going to do the Hoosier issue. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Matt Reese from Hardball and I driving around in his car with you as you had your tape recorder out and we're doing the, the Blood Book interview. And what, a, I, what a journalist I was. <laughs> <laughs> You're the Hunter S. Thompson of the scene. Uh, <laughs> I think you, you may have invented gonzo journalism in metal. I, I might have, yeah. Um, yeah, I uh, you know, it's funny, I was... I was I got a text message. I don't know if you remember our old friend Drew Pierce. He would have been Andy Pierce back then. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's like my best friend back then. Yeah, he te- like completely. And this is like you know the universe. How long, got, how long ago was that? 
Um, well, he, he texted me right before we started this doing this podcast randomly. Today? Yeah, we're still in touch. He, oh. lives, in, he lives in Portland. Um, I don't know if you saw the the reissue of the Exhumed album where they redid that cover with the head and the microwave, and, and it's like super gnarly and high budget now. That's like Drew did that. I'll, I'll send it to you. But, cool. um, but yeah, he randomly, like, apropos of nothing, I'm thinking of him because he's as big into Sammy Terry as we are. He just happened to text me 10 minutes before you and I got on and said, dude, the integrity vinyl just showed up at the house. It's beautiful. And I was yeah, like, yeah, I just got it today too. <laughs> I, Literally today. I wrote him back and was like, it's funny. You should text me that. Cause I'm talking to Dwight in 10 minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> tell well, him I said, hi, I will for sure, man. So yeah. So Sammy Terry was, uh, you know, and I, I think there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of an origin point that we can put there because certainly this duality of, of interest in this spectrum that you and I and other people we know have sort of revolved around in terms of religious iconography and theology and all that sort of stuff. He had that duality within him because he's basically the devil yeah. on TV every Saturday night and then literally at Presbyterian Church on Sunday morning. And, and, you know, that's how Indiana and, <laughs> you know, how goat and the lamb can you get and Sammy Terry. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. So where did you go from there in terms of, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the music thing is its own animal, but in terms of your interest in, in art and philosophy and, and the occult and that sort of thing, where what was that journey like in the beginning? Well, as as you probably know, like in, in, the, in, the, in the Indiana, there wasn't too much uh, accessibility to anything. I was a kid at the time when I moved out of there and I moved to Kentucky, that's where I was able to um, find a lot of resources for my, my thing. Like you said, ear ecstasy, uh, where the, the guy from King horse, uh, the bass player from King horse worked there. And, uh, he dubbed me a tape of Charles Manson songs and, Stuff like that. And these are things that these guys probably don't fucking remember. I mean, I talk to Sean Garrison sometimes, and uh, he remembers a bit of it. But, you know, it's like old guys who are like, yeah, these were some dumb young kids. Yeah. Fuck those guys, you know, and I, I respect that. I understand that. I always wondered and doubted religion. And I always wondered, where did we come from? Why did we come from there? And how did we come from there? I mean, these are obvious questions that everybody probably answers or asks, but um, never gets answered. But um, that's where I, I came from. And it was something, and it is still something that just digs at me. You know, I mean, it fucking digs at me. And I'm trying to find it, and I can never find it, and I never will find it, but I keep trying to. And that's where I came from with all this stuff. And from that, I find Charles Manson. I find Anton LaVey. These are kind of stereotypical places to start, I think. And then uh, in the 80s, it was at least. And then from there, you know, you, you climb up very slowly up this ladder of uh, occult ideals. This is before the internet, you know, and, and you know that, but your your audience may not know that. And what your audience may not know is that 
this was fucking impossible shit to fucking find out in the 80s. And they, you literally, you know, like, people take fucking for granted this Google and all this iPhones and all that shit. I had none of that, neither did you. And uh, you and I, we would write letters to each other, you know. I don't think that none of the fucking people who are uh, your audience now or even my band's audience know how to write a fucking letter. <laughs> totally. <laughs> And, and, you know, that was a magical thing to get a letter, you know, and... Uh, Absolutely. I think that, you know, people like to bring back retro with the video games and all that stuff. That should bring back fucking writing letters because that's some fucking real artistic stuff. You get yep. handwritten stuff from somebody. You get drawings sometimes and different things. And, it, I mean, it, it's a special, special way of communication. I have... We took, we took it for granted. Absolutely. You know? And and I'll and I'll tell you I have I wish I had it physically here because I'd show it to you right now, but I have the integrity demo that you sent me. Oh with my a, god. With a little note folded in that and, and, and dude, and I have I have so few things. Like I have very few pictures of myself as a child, and that's a whole other conversation. You know, but I, I haven't hung on to much. And uh, one thing that I continue to hang on to, um, I, I have that the demo and I had a handwritten note inside from you that said, uh, it was short, but it, it said something basically the effect of, um, you know, check this out. I hope you dig it or whatever. Um, I used to live in Indiana, DeWitt, and I had your phone number and it was just folded up inside the demo. And I've had that demo forever with that in there. And it, it's, <laughs> I've had it long enough that at some point, back when two or three years seemed like a long time, <laughs> at some point you were at my house in Indianapolis probably three or four years into knowing each other and you saw yeah. that I had that demo and you saw the note in there and you were, you know, giving me shit like, Oh, you kept this note for me. And you pressed your lips against it to try to leave like a, like a lipstick type imprint. And I, <laughs> and I, I swear to God, dude, I'll send you a picture of it. You can, that imprint is still on that fucking note <laughs> in, in 2017 in that demo folded up. In That's there. So, funny. Someday, well, you know, I'll, I might someday you an eBay DNA. Uh, person will be happy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Dwid's DNA from 1990. Yeah. So, I mean, but certainly to your point of the artistic and almost sort of spiritual, supernatural sense from getting correspondence back and forth and getting weird packages and weird shit. And, but, uh, you know, but you're also from Indiana. So, I mean, that's something I think that is uh, within you as well. Do you think that that's a geographical thing? You know, perhaps given that we were somewhere that was so isolated culturally, like you mentioned again, you know, James Dean, like I've been to the James Dean festival that they have in Fairmont, Indiana, where he's buried every yeah. September, I think. And even now, I mean, obviously that's their claim to fame for their small town and they have like a car show and, you know, cool thing. But I mean, it's still, it's, desolation man it's you know just midwest desolation but don't you think that the whole concept of all of this is about the fact that we were isolated yes. we didn't have the internet we didn't have this like right now you and i are talking we're on two different fucking continents yeah and we're friends but we haven't talked in long fucking time right and we're talking through fancy devices yeah through the fucking internet 
across continents in real time and yeah. videoing and the whole thing. I mean, that's some fucking crazy shit. Absolutely. But what we had was a stick and an imagination, you know? And I think that that led itself to what it was. And Indiana was just barren nothing. And we had the glory of having nothing. As stupid as it sounds, and as much as I hated it at the time, I still long for it now to have nothing. You know, that whole thing, it's... And that, that might be the basis of your religious, you want to talk about religion, that might be the basis of religion right there, is that we had nothing, and we made something from nothing. And you did it as well. And look where we all ended up. And also what's fucking weird, as you talked about other friends, and I mean, here's a fucking crazy thing. Almost every kid that I grew up with ended up becoming a kid who was sort of famous in some weird way from uh, in Indiana, in Green, Green, Greenwood, Indiana, where I uh, grew up for a bit. Billy Nitschke, he was a, a horror uh, bike uh, trickster, mm-hmm. and he'd become famous in that. And he, he rode a 10-speed before I lived across the street from him. It's not because of me that he rode a BMX bike, but... He, he ended up doing it, and that was on his own thing. And then, you know, all these band guys and all this stuff. And I, sometimes I think about, like, what the fuck is that, you know? Yeah. How crazy is that that everybody that we know ended up becoming infected with this kind of craziness of being world changers in a way. You know, yeah. in a small level, in a small level. No, and people that that had you taken a poll of, you know, in the culture around us, you know, for example, amongst our, our peers in school or wherever, and said, hey, what do you think this person's going to amount to? Yeah, it we're losers. Nothing. Yeah. 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 We're fucking losers. We're nerds. We're comic book fucking fiends. We're f- fuck those guys. They don't know nothing. And where are those fucking guys at? They're exactly. in trailer parks. They're exactly. not fucking, no, they're not relevant right now. And I'm not saying that I'm so relevant, but, you know, we did some stuff, you and I, and a lot of our friends that we grew up with. How fucking weird is that? I think that's fucking real fucking weird. And I try to talk to some of my friends about it, but they don't know how to uh, wrap their head around it, you know? One of my good friends who I love is Frank Novinick and he used to play he played in my band for about 10 years and now he plays in Hatebreed and uh, I talked to him about it he says you know man it's fucking some crazy stuff I, he's like we were just basically hillbillies you know and uh, somehow we become guys that travel the world and we're old now and we still do it and how fucking crazy is that you know and I, I agree with that you know and Frank is a one of the most wonderful people on the planet and uh, what a fucking crazy thing it is but it isn't just Frank it's so many fucking people that I grew up with that were just like kids that like to skateboard and like to do this stuff I remember you know I was skateboarding and I, I moved down to Xenia Ohio and lived there and skateboarded with uh, 
guys from Assault Skateboards, like Ned Haddon and uh, these fellas. And uh, I would hang out with these guys that were like real, real good skateboarders. I was, I was okay at skateboarding. I wasn't so great, but I was good enough to do some stuff. And uh, there was a guy who would hang out with us who was into, uh, into jazz and stuff. And he was working with Bill Laswell. Yeah. Uh, Bill, Bill, Bill Laswell did a uh, last exit and he, yeah. he's a jazz fusion guy. He also produced a motorhead record and, um, somehow, and I don't know how this worked out, but this is like one of those stories, you know, that doesn't make any fucking sense. He said, you know, I want to send this kid, and I was a kid at the time. I, mean, I was fucking 18. I'm going to send this kid, you know, packages. At the time, it was cassettes because CDs didn't even exist at that. So I would get these cassettes every week, every two weeks, whatever it was. Bootsy Collins, uh, Last Exit, all this crazy stuff from these guys because they were trying to uh, – they had no interest in doing anything uh, – financially but they wanted to sort of educate me does that make sense yeah and it yeah. was it was a very strange thing but it was a beautiful thing it was a, a the greatest gift uh, one of the greatest gifts that ever happened to me it was so insane you know and i remember like as i was leaving uh living down in xenia uh, the guy who was skateboarding with me who i think uh ended up becoming the guy buckethead Oh, wow. You know, but wow. he was not called that then. He was right. a guy who skateboarded. And he said, you know what, man? I'm going to buy you a gift because you're going to leave. And he bought me a videotape, a videotape of Chet Baker, Chet Baker's Let's Get Lost uh, uh, documentary on Chet Baker. Almost blue. Almost doing things. We used to do. Everybody has a story about Chet Baker. Bill Claxton, photographer, told me when Charlie Parker first heard Chet play. He called Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie and said, There's a little white cat out here who's going to give you guys a lot of trouble. And he said, This is a guy who's an asshole like you, who, when you're dead, nobody's going to give a fuck about you. But I want you to watch this because it's going to change your life. And maybe you won't be such a fucking asshole. Because you remember me. Uh, I was a fucking asshole. Right? You, you know that, right? Yeah, yeah sure. Because right now, like, we're old guys, Ryan. And, and yeah. you know, we're friendly. I'm, I'm, I'm only laughing because I was an asshole also. So. Yeah, you were also an asshole. But I was an asshole. I was a big fucking asshole. And I'm, I'm, uh, I can admit it now. At the time, I, I couldn't admit it because I didn't know it. But at the time, I was a big fucking asshole. And they gave me this stuff, and it changed some some small pieces at the time, you know. But that's how things go, you know. You got to graduate into uh, into change. But uh, I'm probably still an asshole. But uh, you know, I'm trying to do better. Well, I feel like I, I can tie a lot of what we're talking about together in terms of that isolation and how it creates imagination and creativity. And I think you hit upon something really crucial about, you know maybe that, that isolation in, amongst the cosmos was what caused humankind to first start clawing towards trying to organize some kind of meaning or trying to understand something bigger than them and put allegories and, and myth to it. And I think 
it even ties into, you know, our self-described uh, assholeness as teenagers and young adults in that I think we were, you know, shaking our fists at the sky and clawing and scratching at everything around us just trying to, you know, I don't know, like shake up the emptiness that was around us or that was inside of us maybe you know i, I yeah, feel i feel yeah. like speaking for myself anyway, i don't want to i don't want to put words in your mouth but i think that was a big part of it for me and why i identified why i became friends with you and other people and identified with these characters in pop popular culture whether it was uh nwa or axel rose you know all the way on down to subculture and, and people that we admired in, in that realm that were complicated and difficult and filled with contradictions and extremes but were authentic and were just making noise against the noise or noise against the silence maybe you know and i feel like that's where a lot of these kindred spirits where we all sort of ended up like you said for some intangible sort of magical reason all these people that we knew that society would have predicted would amount to nothing all ended up doing something significant in some type of creative artistic field that means something to people you know i mean what what hatebreed does for example what you know a guy like frank their their band inspires people you know there's alienated pissed off kids somewhere that are getting something out of that that's maybe helping them to you know maybe you know and certainly in the same way that integrity or a lot of these things are helping some eight-year-old kid who's got a knife and wants to fucking murder his stepdad, you know? Um, and maybe, the, and maybe they can, maybe they hear integrity and they're channeling that somewhere different and that will become something down the road that we could never predict, you know? And, I, and that's what I think makes all this shit worth it and why we're still involved in any of it. Yeah. I don't know if I look at it as, as, as helping and changing, uh, as much, but, uh, but Frank is definitely uh, doing good things, and I'm very proud of him, and uh, I'm happy for what he's been able to achieve in his life. I remember him as a, a young kid, just as, as I, pretty much at the same time as I met you. And uh, he was a skater guy, and he didn't have a band at the time, and eventually he, he started uh, the band Ringworm and, mm-hmm. uh, and all that. Yeah, the world is a strange place, you know. So many people that I grew up with ended up uh, on a global place where I see them often, you know, like yeah. Derek from uh, Sepultura. And yeah. uh, that's a weird thing. I, he was one of my best friends when I moved to Cleveland. And uh, there he is, you know, he's <laughs> yeah. this is fun to talk to you, you know. I mean, uh, aside of the fact that we're friends, you know, uh, I always want to tease you about this uh, metalcore thing. You have cursed me for fucking so long with that. <laughs> the blackest curse. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have a, I have another friend who I'm pretty sure came up with new wave of American heavy metal. Um, this guy Tom B, who was at Century Media at the time. But um, yeah, like, like I said, I've never even uttered it out loud. But I'm pretty sure now that you've said it, I can admit that I'm I'm pretty confident. No, 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 I'm responsible. There, for I think there's court. no fucking doubt that it's you. <laughs> Cause like it wasn't like I was like you know I have to research this I knew it was you, <laughs> and I told people I'm like this friend of mine he's a fucking asshole who fucking <laughs> got me in this fucking conversation yep. for fucking decades you know and they don't you know and they don't know it's like um 
you know, I remember when we were digging up those old hardball demos, I guess a year ago or something. And you were saying, man, I don't, I, I didn't even remember that there was this much like Christian death and Sam Hain and, and weirdness happening in there because a lot of early integrity and it's like, we were, we were just working within the communities that we could find where we could do anything. So maybe yeah. some of the artifice of that at first was part of the window dressing of it, but we were always, and when I say we, I mean me and you and, and certainly a bunch of other people we could name that we knew. We were always contrarians and, and kind of re rebelling within the rebellious sphere, you know, like we were trying to do something different in there. You know, you know what I think it is, is like there was different in, in periods of time. There was guys who were doing different, weird, crazy stuff. And some of those guys were like aware that they were doing different, crazy stuff. And then there were guys who were not so aware of it and probably yeah. we were we were those guys who were not so aware that anybody would give a fuck yeah into the thing and here we are you know i think that's probably where it all lies you know you know we were talking about the fact that we're conducting this conversation across an ocean and so on and just how crazy all of that is i would argue even that the subculture that we were part of was part of an early like we almost forced instant communication and social networks, for lack of a better phrase. We created that where it didn't exist, you know, through letter writing and fanzines and putting on shows for each other's bands out of town. And, you know, where people used to have those little dialers, those little devices where you could cheat yeah, yeah. long distance <laughs> phone call. You know, it's like we, we were, we were kind of ahead of the game in terms of, of creating a society within society that's now omnipresent. That's now the way everyone communicates and every, everybody knows somebody somewhere else and is able to keep in touch and keep up with what, it, but we were, we were making that. I barely knew anybody who fucking lived around me, but I had these close friends who, you know, lived in Cleveland or, you know, Cal, you know, Sean vegan, Reich was in Laguna beach, California. I was friends with that guy. Good friends talking to him on the phone all the time, writing letters back and forth for a good two or three years before I ever met him. You yeah. Know? And, um, and we're just as close now in 2017, we live 20 minutes away from each other. And I don't think I've seen him in person. And we were at the same Morrissey gig like a year ago and texting like, Hey, we should, and then just like never did. You know what I mean? It's like, and we're, not, <laughs> and we're not any less close, you know? Um, right. So it's interesting how that, how that worked. I, I would say going back to what you were saying about, you know, being turned on to Chet Baker and, and people giving you things sort of, whether it was Manson's music from one of the guys from King Horse, people giving you things just to sort of expose you to other things to kind of trip out on and expand your mind. I would say, and this is a couple stuff I definitely don't want to neglect, whether it's, you know, Jeff Lundgren. Whether it's the process church and the idea of humanity is the devil the process or in full the process church of the final judgment began to flourish in the 1960s and 1970s its founders were an englishman named robert moore who later changed his name to robert de grimston and marianne mclean the process church combined community activism with the peculiar belief that jehovah christ and satan were not enemies, but all equal parts of creation. The process members 
were often viewed as satanic on the grounds that they worshipped both Christ and Satan. Their belief is that Satan will become reconciled with Christ, and together they will come at the end of the world to judge humanity. Christ to judge and Satan to execute judgment. Some of these things that were early into the career and catalog of integrity, these were new and radical things that you were introducing that were kind of from the esoteric strain of Americana that hadn't intermingled with punk and hardcore or anything like that until you introduced it. And so I'm, I'm very curious to know kind of how you, how you came across those things, what your relationship was to it. And because I've never seen you necessarily as someone who's saying, here's, here's what my trip is and I'm proselytizing and I want other people to be into this trip too. I've only seen it more that you've collected this uh, assemblage of ideas that overlap in certain ways and have a continuity to each other, but are just ideas. Like you're just putting it out there and going like, here's this, you know, combative, aggressive presentation of all these ideas for people to absorb and, and do what they will with. If I'm way off on that, you know, correct me, but I'm yeah, I think that you're right in the regard that maybe in a, the, the concept of a catalog, I'm offering these ideas, but there are things that I come across. And when I was younger, there were things that I came across that were more obscure than they probably would appear now, you know? Yeah. So now like, oh, Jeff Lundgren or any of the things you, you mentioned earlier, that's probably like, oh, wow, wow. You know, that stuff comes by my Facebook every day. It's not such an important thing but well i mean there's, the time, there's wikipedia pages now but yeah there was i read this essay that Patton oswalt wrote for wired magazine once about how if, if you knew kids in the 80s that were into blade runner you know they were like these super nerds who knew all you know whereas now you can be a kid who's never even seen the movie and just watch like a couple pivotal scenes on youtube and read the wikipedia page and move on and be like now i'm a blade runner expert just like that guy in the 80s that spent you know three years of his life in coffee shops talking about Blade Runner with his buddies. Um, and, and this this fits into that category, I think, too, because someone listening to this can go, what is the process, church? And Google it and find some stuff. Whereas, I mean, that's a very recent thing. I would say that's even in the 2000s. Because even at the advent of the internet, a lot of this stuff still wasn't yeah. shown up on the internet yet. You know? Yeah, the process thing is definitely uh, 2000s and, and, and beyond, even 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 uh, in the last 10 years, I think, but um, because of Feral House. And um, mm. it was a strange situation. I mean, when I was into, into that stuff, it was not popular. People hated that kind of thing. And it was uh, considered very taboo and, 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 and bizarre to like that. And it was a weird thing to like anything that was unusual uh, back then. And um, it's weird that people are now uh, interested in that. And But that's good, I guess. I don't really know. It's, it's, it's a weird thing. How did one discover that stuff back then? It wasn't easy. I, I would have to actually write letters, make friends with people, gain their trust and then visit them 
and find out things about it. And it wasn't easy at all. And sometimes it was dangerous, I guess. And uh, it was a weird thing. There was a guy in Indianapolis who did a zine and whatever, who was like pen pals with Charles Manson. And I remember first learning that and just, and just, you know, it opened my mind to the idea that that was even something you could do. <laughs> you know, like I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't know you could even like figure that out and do it and, and maintain it. So yeah, some of these relationships and correspondences. Well, that you were, was that guy, was that guy Tyler Davis? Yes. Tyler Davis. Okay. Yeah. From Anya offensive. Yeah. And they were, uh, they were, um, sending like jewelry back and forth or something. There was a whole, he had a whole yeah, yeah, relationship they, with, yeah. They, he, he would make he would, uh, dolls out of uh, socks and stuff. Yeah, he Tyler was the first vegan I ever knew anywhere, at any point in my life. Tyler was a very pivotal uh, guy in the underground scene in, in pretty much the Midwest. He, he had a distribution uh, thing going on. He, he was the first guy who had Wishing Well records, if, mm-hmm. if people remember what that was, which was uh, Youth of Today and uh, Uniform Choice and that kind of yeah. stuff. He even had the Schism, Project X, 7-inch uh, uh, magazine he thing. Was, he was the first straight-edge guy that I knew, and he was the first, um, the first guy I knew who had any association or explanation for the whole, like, Basically, he was able to break down for me skinhead culture beyond what I'd seen on Geraldo Rivera, um, but the, to the vast history and multitude of, you know, from Jamaica to England to uh, sharp skins to whatever. Like he, you know, again, like there's no fucking internet, you know, and there weren't, and this wasn't a subculture where there were glorious high budget documentaries being made. So it's like, so if you wanted to know... Tyler was the internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you wanted to know what a vegan was, you know, Tyler was the guy who explained it to you, or you could read it in his fanzine. <laughs> you know, it's funny, like, uh, all these guys that we grew up with became uh, guys that are doing stuff. That's pretty yeah. fantastic, you know? It's amazing. Do you ever think about that? I, it, absolutely. From time to time. I mean, it's um, even... Uh, even across generations because there's people that i encountered here here's here's a good case in point when i was uh a reporter for mtv news when that movie uh which one was first remember the movie old school which was like will ferrell's big breakout comedy role yeah and that guy went on to make the direct director went on to do the hangover and uh but todd phillips the guy who directed old school i start talking to him in this interview did you did you make him the dan fan well, dude, uh, no. Was he a Dan fan before you? He directed the Gigi Allen documentary. Oh, how fucking crazy! Because is that? I know, I know, yeah. the best dancing song that's come out in the past ten years is because of that fucking absolutely uh, part two of that movie. Yeah, uh, Black Hell, Green Hell, Black Hell, uh, he- it uh, Hell. It's Black Hell. Yes, it's and he's got the video with the Elvis fire, and he's in the like weird cloak. No, room. I don't think he has a video. Oh, he does. does he no, he made a video for when he did that oh. uh, that Elvis special. I think I think he doesn't. Uh, it's Black Hell. Yeah, and it's a bluesy song. Yeah, and I agree, it's the best song he's done. Are you friends with this fucking guy? Um, I have his AOL email address. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not that's not enough, my friend. Yeah, I wouldn't somebody, say I'm friends with him. I know him casually. Somebody needs to make a intervention with Danzig, and have oh them... Danzig. I thought you meant Todd Phillips. No, I'm not friends with Danzig. No, but I I meant with the director of, of yeah, the yeah, movie. yeah. 
because he seems to be able to make Danzig make good stuff. That's a good Because Black Hell is a good song. But I would love to see Danzig with an old New Orleans bluesman, Delta bluesman, playing guitar, stomping his foot, and then just Danzig. That's all. Nothing against Tommy Victor. Nothing against Steve. Nothing against any of those guys. But how fucking great would that be? Can we just make a podcast about how much we love dancing? Um, I actually have uh, a name for it already. I want to call it Talk Among Us. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> I, I want to be your first uh, your first guest. And my uh, my Metallica podcast is called Speak and Destroy. So, yeah, I've got I've got the names. It's been in the incubator. Um, well, you you have my phone number. Uh, you know, I, I want to tell you it's really great to talk to you and it's fun and Dude, it's cuts awesome. us out of and no, and as a uh, as a workaholic, and you know, as we get older and busy, and I'm, I'm I go out of my way to create situations where I get to spend time with people I enjoy that I wouldn't otherwise, you know, because it's like I'm constant. I can put this in the context of work because I'm doing my podcast right now, you know, and you're doing work because you're doing a block of integrity phoners today. So, and that just so happens that we get to fucking hang out, you know, virtually. So that's not by accident. Um, so yeah, I feel the I same like, way. Thank you. Uh, some of these, some of these characters, you know, because as much as it is kind of ubiquitous within our friends, still to the world at large, I think things like the Process Church or a lot of these authors and and various cults and things like that that you've been fascinated by, and I've, I'm fascinated by as well. What are, I mean, Feral House you mentioned. What are some of the better resources that you would recommend for people that are intrigued by a lot of the same things that want to go down the rabbit hole and learn more about that underbelly. Well, uh, initially, you know, I think it goes back to Adam Parfrey. Uh, he worked for a muck press and that was where I first started finding a lot of weird fucking books. And then he's branched out on his own and started feral. He has a very good nose for bizarre stuff. Um, I don't know if I if I'm the source to tell you where and I'm not going to be probably the most reliable one because I don't want you to go <laughs> where I haven't been yet because I'm trying to get there, too. You know? Yeah. And yeah. and if and if somebody else gets there first, then well, I can't really write fucking songs about it. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> which bring, so there's that. Yeah. Which brings us full circle to what I was saying at the very beginning where I have this dual. I want to dig in and know everything, but I also want to, even as a friend and fan, protect the mystique and the 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 mystery to it. Because, and that honestly is what this whole podcast is themed around: is the idea of existing within the margins, within the mystery. Because the scariest thing to me, the older that I get, when it comes to the life's bigger questions, as much as we've all been looking for answers, as you eloquently put it, the scariest thing is certainty. And I've learned yeah. where I've gotten comfortable as an adult is living in that doubt and finding to me my interpretation of God, which I could even put through this hard to quantify Christian framework that works for me. It's the mystery of it. If, if there's a God, it's, it's a God that lives in the mystery and in the unknowing and in the faith and in the doubt and in the, the conflict. And certainly as I think integrity has so brilliantly explored over the years and continues to do, there's a duality of that devil in the church, like you said, and of uh, the nobility 
of uh, a righteous, profane adversary fighting against what's perceived to be good sometimes. You know, uh, I, I think all of that whole integrity has been really instrumental in bringing to the forefront within music culture this idea of duality and this idea of a, a coexistence of good and evil and its interdependence on each other. I think that's great. Thank you. So, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, it's a crazy situation. All this stuff is. Um, religion has always been a, a, a thorn in my side and uh, something that I've always tried to explore and try to find the answer. And I know I won't. And I'm okay with the fact that I won't, but I still try to find those answers. You know? Yeah. I still look for them. Yeah. And that's more important to me than anything else. More important than the music, more important than the art. But it fuels the music and it fuels the art. And uh, it's a strange, strange thing to be in. And I don't know if if I can really throw all the blame at Sammy Terry, but uh, <laughs> he needs to get some fucking blame. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and you know what? And this if this podcast accomplishes if this podcast accomplishes nothing else, it will expose new people to Sammy Terry. That is a yeah, rabbit hole will, that we can happily put, send people down. It will put the blame on Sammy Terry. <laughs> <laughs> I get the blame for the term metalcore. Sammy Terry gets the blame for our very existence. Yes. And, and Javier Van Haas, he invented fashion core. I want all the kids to know. But I, I think that you probably are the guy who uh, who, who <laughs> is responsible for the, the metal core. Thing. You, you, you really don't think that? Or? No, I do think that. I, I, I'm, I'm, not being, I'm not kidding when I say I've, I've never said it but out when, loud, but I've, but I've when felt I, responsible. When I've, told people, when I've told people that, I didn't tell people that in a way that I was – uh, you know, picking on you no, or anything. But also I didn't tell people in a way that I was uh, promoting you. <laughs> I just said, I knew this guy. And I, what I think is, well, here, here's what I, you want to hear what I think? Sure. Yeah. Why not? Maybe you want to edit this out, but I, ha I have, I have written in the public sphere that those of here tomorrow is the first true metalcore album. And that that began the genre and everything prior was crossover or was this, or was that, that was the first true. Here, here's what I think. If you want to hear my conspiracy theory, I want to put a fucking tin hat on. Uh, <laughs> so, so what I think is you started managing some bands and you said, Hey, these are some bands that I like because guys that are friends do that shit, you know? And maybe one of those bands was my band. And, Somehow they were like, hey, that's cool, but we also want to mix in this other stuff. And that became the metalcore thing. And it sort of became, I don't know if that's the way it went down or not. I think that's, that's astute. I think that may, and I, I appreciate it. I take it as a compliment, <clears throat> a blessing and a curse. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't mean it in a negative no, way. It's a, bl it's a but blessing I, I and think a curse. you were probably like, hey, you're my friends, guys who are friends, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Here's some stuff, you know. No, and I, I think also in my role as a culture critic or whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it, as reporters do with any subject, music criticism or elsewhere, seeking to sort of, because, you know, on the one hand, every band I've ever interviewed without fail has said, I don't really like to be compared. I don't really think we sound like anybody. I don't. 
And nine times out of 10, you can say, really? Because you sound just like these three other bands. Um, or just in terms of, uh, it doesn't have to be negative categorization when it's easy conversation amongst friends. You know, because when we were kids and if we were trying to describe a record to one another and saying, you should really check this out. How often did we say, it sounds like nothing else ever. I don't even know where to put it. It's crazy. Those were fewer and, and further between. Whereas even something like, say, Metallica, you know, my favorite band of all time. Metallica sounds like Metallica, and they're unique, and they inspired so many other bands. At the same time, you can Including say... Including us. Yeah, and you, at the same time, you can reverse engineer it and go, well, it's Diamond Head plus Motorhead with a little Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, but it's through the prism of those guys and where they came from and how they saw things and their life experience and growing up, and that's what made it unique. So I think to that extent, and this is something that I've, I hear myself saying to bands often, uh, and, and usually this is in a setting where I'm writing a bio for a band, right? Is I always say, look, I know you don't want to be compared anywhere, but if I would suggest that you come up with a few components, reference points, even if it's films or comic books or whatever it is, a few reference points that were building blocks for what you became, because if you don't tell that story yourself, it's going to be written for you and you're never going to like the story that's written by someone else. That may, that's just my sort of philosophy on that with, you know, a lot of bands. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. You know, cause every, every band you talk to hates every other band that they're lumped in with or, you know, we, and yet when we're talking about the blues or uh, punk rock or, any you know hip hop. If, you know. if you're gonna lump me in with the blues, then I'm not gonna pretty much. <laughs> I, I would definitely put some blues in integrity, but yeah, uh, I think I think that blues and integrity are the same. I think that when people mistake us as a hardcore band, because hardcore itself, by definition, but you're an old fucker like me, so you're wrong about what hardcore means, and I'm wrong about what hardcore means. To New generations, hardcore means this kind of Limp biscuit uh, stuff, you know, uh, you know, this kind of rapping and this thing. But our, at least my idea of hardcore was too metal to be punk, too <laughs> punk to be metal. Yeah. That's hardcore, you know, yeah. and that was where I came from. And um, that's where I thought, okay, I'm hardcore. And then my first album came out, and they were like, this isn't fucking hardcore. Maximum <laughs> Rock and Roll. Yeah, yeah. I want to have you back on this podcast and 
Yeah, I'll do your Metallica one, whatever you want, man. <laughs> um, so much respect and admiration for you, my friend, and I'm I'm very glad that you are continuing. To oh, but really, I'm really happy for you, and I'm glad things are going great. You know. Yeah, I love that you're continuing to provoke and inspire because that's uh, what you're good at, and that's where you're. That's, I, where, that's what the world. That's what the world needs from I'm, you. <laughs> I'm good at provocation. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm glad, and I'm glad you're uh, living somewhere that you enjoy and uh, surrounded by oh, families. I enjoy the price of the beer. <laughs> so. Awesome, dude. Well, I'll catch up with you soon, man. This has been great. Cheers, Brian. I love you, dude. Love you too, brother. that does it for this episode of no prize from god please if you like this episode and you like what we're doing here with the no prize from god podcast give us a rating and a review on the itunes store ratings and reviews help with visibility and will help people discover this podcast and participate in all of these great conversations that we've been having so far follow no prize from god on instagram and twitter and facebook no Prize from God is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Follow me at Ryan Downey on Twitter and at Superhero HQ on Instagram. You guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey.